Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to have you here to listen to this podcast episode with Leslie Grace Streeter, the author of Black Widow. This podcast episode is fantastic. It's so much fun. We had so much fun that before it was over, we committed to getting together again so that we could talk music. She and I both have just a deep passion of all kinds of music and discover at the end of the episode, as you'll see, that we had, we were at the same concert in the mid-90s together. You'll hear us get interrupted. We're both moms and we're working at home with kids. And I almost edited it out and I just thought, you know what, this is the real world. The whole point of Leslie's book is to give you the nitty gritty of grief. And so here it is, two people who are really just meeting for the first time. Such a fan of hers. She was so generous to give me so much of her time. And we're going to get together and do an Instagram live. So watch for that. Welcome. I hope you enjoy the episode. So welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am Megan Reardon Jarvis. I am delighted to be your host and to be here today with Leslie Gray Streeter. She has written this extraordinary book, Black Widow, that I finished actually in one day because I couldn't put it down and I made all these little underlines that might make you read from it later. Multiple friends, all different folks were like, hey, do you know this book? Do you know this book? Have you heard her? And a good friend of mine, my friend Andrea, hey, Andrea, heard her on a podcast and was like, you have to have her on. How did she make grief sound so funny? But you did. So thank you so much for being here. This is really, honestly, I say this all the time. If I had known that my extreme fangirling could have an outlet by having a podcast, I would have started a podcast five years ago. I wrote to you and you wrote right back to me. And I am just delighted to have you here. I have to tell you, I listened to your, and I'm blanking because I'm old and I'm tired and I have a child, but your most recent, the one that you sent me, the, yes. the interview that you sent me, um, yes. which segued into so many things about, it started with grief and about parental grief, but then it went into things like work and, and feminism and men making more than women, why we're sick of that. Yeah. And all that. And just that was Deborah Cope, Copagan. Yes. Lady parts. And yeah, I mean, we just went all over. We, that we, was so great. I really appreciate it. And also, like I said, I think that the more I'm into this, you know, it's funny, I make fun of the word journey in my, in my title, but to this, oh, this path, and we're talking to Pat Oswald. He goes, I hate that word too. You know, I think it's terrible. It's so bad. I, I think what it is, is that there are people who identify with that word very strongly. Like I'm involved in like Camp Widow and some other things. And the word journey is used very earnestly and used very thoughtfully. And is it describes what you were on, on a path or whatever. But to me, it's such a word that I attach to kind of, Sorry, Marianne Williamson. Marianne Williamson esque yes. kind of like um, faux spiritual. Yes. Let me hit you with some sage. Let me whatever. Once again, there are people who relate to this, and I do not mean to belittle anyone else's path or crazy road through this terrible experience of grief. Right. I just thought that there was such a group of people and not just like ironic Gen Xers who make fun of everything. It wasn't that. I wasn't like, you know, sitting in a leather jacket smoking going, I'm going to be the cool grief, grief book. <laughs> it was more like I had no idea what I was doing. And any template that was put down for me that said, you do this, 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 and this, and you come out the other side. Or I found that so many books 
really started at the end. Yeah. It assumed a healing or it assumed that it got better in a certain way. And it was sort of like the person reading the book, like, I have now come through this thing. And let me tell you in a very beautiful and open and spiritual white lotus kind of a way, everything I'm like, I was drinking and I was eating too much cake. And I was like, when I talked about going to like the dive bar next to the pie shop, and I was like, look, it's tomorrow the pie shop. I will go to both. It was just, it was messy. Yeah. And in many ways, there were things that were neat or neater and made sense or more linear, but that nobody has any idea. It mm. was not a how-to. Because how, why would you want to? <laughs> so, well, there is no such thing as a how-to, but I love what you just, first of all, I love that you said that you listened to the episode with Deborah. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. Also, this is kind of always a meandering conversation because, you know, in the end, I'm a little bit self-centered and I do a lot of therapy with people because that's my yeah. day job and that's for the people I'm sitting with. But the podcast really is about my own learning and, my, and about my own sort of transitioning through- yes what grief felt like early versus what grief felt like later. And I, I gotta tell you when I first really came into my grief story, which is predominantly about my mom dying, I read 88 books. I went to an inpatient mental health facility because I had really Mm. bad PTSD came out, read every memoir. It really was the first time I'd sat down and read memoir. 70% of those books I threw across the room. Especially, <laughs> no, no, I'm so serious. My husband would be like, oh, so we don't love that one, right? It'd be like in a pile near my bed. I'm, Fuck this book. And a lot of those books, I probably would feel differently if I read them now. But sure. I was looking for myself in the book, right? And I needed to see a mess. I didn't want some kind of glorious, what my colleague calls fat jeans, meaning like you're standing and you're skinny now, but you're showing everyone how fat you used to be. I don't want that book. Wasn't I a mess? But now I'm skinny. Now, but I'm, we'll see. That was a thing. I yeah. basically I wrote this book because it's a book I wish that I had had. Yeah. I wish that I had had a a book that was about someone. Although I mean, I loved and God God rest her soul, Joan Didion. But you know, oh, yeah. your your magical thinking was so unrelentingly sad. And that's what I liked about it because, you know, it was lyrical and beautiful, but it was like, and then her daughter dies at the end, her husband dies and her daughter dies. And then she didn't like get to the end of it and have this glorious Julia Julia Roberts moment where she's on the beach in the sun with Javier Bardem. You know, it wasn't that at all. It was like, and then more sadness happens. Yeah. And then you're, it, it's a joy to be alive, to have experienced these things, but it is very sad. And there's, there were endings. And I read that long before um, I was widowed. And I remember going, oh my gosh. And when, when Scott died, I bought what I thought was the book and it was the play version with Vanessa Redgrave and John Didion wrote it, but it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was Quick. different. They had, it, yeah. it, it read in a cleaner way, but it was still devastating and still, yeah beautiful and it had so that this book but it wasn't funny my elevator pitch for my book when I was pitching it was it's like the year of magical thinking but funny and with black people yeah but this is what I really love and I do want you to for the for the readers who have not yet read the book I do want you to just give a little bit of synopsis but before you do that what I want to say is that you know 
part of what memoir really is about is being able to tell your personal story, right? And then offer that out into the world so that people yes. can relate to it. And so, you know, there's a lot going on in your life. You are an interracial couple. You yeah. are in the process of adopting. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, have yeah. extended family that are unique to you. And you're a writer and a journalist who happens to love music and comedy. So yeah. all of that, you know, in some ways, it's an extraordinary book. And I think it's a tribute to the writing that, again, multiple people were like, you're going to like this book because I'm a definite wise ass. I'm not necessarily a wise ass writer. I'm going to send you my book when it's done. And it's very sincere and very about trauma. But my experience in life is full of like the whole breadth of it. Right. And after my mom died, I listened to Nora McInerney's terrible things oh, for asking. Podcast. And she's a friend. Yeah. Well, is she? Oh my God. So all I, I just would like blow the leaves on my lawn and turn my ear pods up and just listen to terrible things that happen to other people and be like, well, their story is at least as bad as mine. And this one, I, I just underlined so many different things because your personality has, you're rooting for you the whole time Thank you. because you, you know, you can feel this woman who loves life and is a big presence in life and just had her ass handed to her by the universe. Right. <laughs> oh, so I'd love you, yeah. Right. So can you just, can you give people just a nugget of how you came into the grief space and, yes. and you know, what that story is? So I, and I'll back up a little before my, my husband died in 2015, but my father died in 2012. So that set the everything falls apart. You know, we're talking 1990s, little dog's eye view for you. Everything falls yeah. apart. Yes, it does. So my dad died in 2012 and it was expected. He had cancer. He died literally right after meeting my nephew. So he got to meet his first grandson for like two days and then he went unresponsive and he died. Terrible, 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 terrible. So, you know, terrible things happened. Scott's mother had died Scott, it was my husband, had died in 2010. We got married in 2010 in February. She died Labor Day. She died right around the Jewish holidays. She had said to us, are you coming home? We said no. And then she died on a holiday. And my, my brother-in-law goes, so you came home, didn't you? <laughs> That's like, pretty funny. She got her way. She wanted she you did, to come home. Like, she made and that then happen. you came home. Because we're there right. in the yeah. house. And Scott goes, wait a minute. And my brother goes, ha ha, she won. You're here. You and we did the whole shiva during it's a whole thing but anyway so that was 2010 and then my dad, dad died two years later in 2012 and then scott died of a heart attack at 44 quite suddenly i'll kill you for breeze the couch good for you babe now you have sleeping to do <laughs> i love you thank you <laughs> yeah. how old is bruce now how old is he now you're teaching him life skills you're teaching Dude, him the skills I, that he's going to need to have out in the world. That's really important. It's critical. I had this conversation. We were talking earlier about Zibi Owens. I was on this panel. Oh, yeah. Because um, she was supposed to was supposed to be in person in Rhode Island, this like really cool mom's writer's retreat. And then because of Delta, oh, yeah. so, even before so Omicron. I was coming. And yes. I, Zibi was publishing my memoir. Amazing. Did you tell, tell her, say hi, and talk to her. But Amazing. I will. I saw uh, that she blurbed your book, but I didn't see that. Yes. Until oh, she's so great. Yeah. So we're on this panel and um, people were talking about, it was about motherhood and about writing as a mother specifically. And I'm sorry, one of the, hang on a second. What is wrong? 
okay, tell them to go away. Tell them that daddy and I are in meetings and they'll have to come back another day. And we're really sorry. I'm sorry. Something. <laughs> there are people okay. outside my children are trying to handle. Sorry, you and Zibby. And I, That's and okay. I, so Zibby, we're on this, I was on this panel. We're talking about things. Basically, it was about the whole not raising um, helpless children thing. There was a woman who was just um, going to be, she wasn't on a panel. She was just one of the people in the audience who had yeah. paid. So she was like, yeah, you know, she was talking about having been a single mother and being about our age and having these twin 19 year old, they're 19 now, but she basically felt like a lot of Gen Xers, you know, we feel like in a point of pride, the sort of latchkey, rusty yeah. helmet, you know, no, no seatbelt kind of existence. And yeah. she felt that was traumatic for this woman in her life because it was like, she did not feel supported. She did not feel that she had any backing. So she went the other direction with her kids and she did everything for them or whatever. And they didn't know how to do laundry. Yeah. And I said, no offense. I said, but you know, when my child was very young, I said to him, you don't know these words, but I'm explaining to you, I will not raise a helpless man. I will not have whatever woman or man or whoever you wind up with come to me and knock on my door and go, this is your fault. You know, because it's like, why would you send people into the world not knowing how to fend for themselves? Uh, I don't get it. Anyway, so- but it's such an interesting concept that like, I think, I mean, you and I are generally talking about trauma and I think there's a lot of stuff that we're always trying to correct in our lives, yes. but we're not necessarily serving the kid in front of us. Like if you had some benign neglect as a child and wish that your parents had been more present over compensating for that is not necessarily a great match for your kids. I mean, I'm one of six. I grew up on a farm. We were, we were barely supervised, which had some dramatic elements. In my adulthood, my mom would be like, sorry, wait, what did you just say? And I'm like, oh yeah, no, we were stealing tractors. You just didn't know. There are elements in that that are not great, but there are some things, right? I mean, I have a, I have a degree in child development, like teaching my child to make his own quesadilla, teaching them to be able to walk up to a counter and like order a, a donut for themselves and pay for it. Like and these order are a donut life and functions. Pay for- and also to, there's this whole like meme on, and this thing that goes around on both Twitter and Facebook and things about the phenomenon of being a latchkey kid yeah. and having to take the chicken from the freezer. Like if your parents yeah. are working, have to defrost the chicken. And that if you don't, then you're like, oh no, how to defrost the chicken? Because your mother's coming home and whatever. And basically the idea that we were placed in a, in a space very young well, not really young, young in our sense. There's 20 years before then, everyone, like you said, you lived on farms, you were responsible to each other, but you had responsibility to each other that you, at 15, someone said to you, whether or not we eat chicken tonight is based on whether you remember to take the chicken down. And we're giving you this responsibility. And that my son is being given some responsibilities to other people, like help me set the table or take the things away or put up the Christmas tree or whatever that, he can't just like, and my nephew does this too sometimes, they go sit at the table and they take out their plate and their fork. They're like, yay. It's like, no, no. I said, like, what if I did that? And you had no plate or no yeah. fork. That That's you right. have to be responsible. And once again, I absolutely believe that so many of the screwed upness of kids, people younger than us is because of response to either generational trauma or a situational trauma where people said, I have to overcompensate, like you That's said, right. for those things. 
And I just, I refuse to raise a helpless person. I refuse to place, to raise someone who not only cannot do things for himself, but that when he goes into the world, feels he has no responsibility to other people. That's right. And what I've said to my husband often and to my mom and my sister is like, I want to like my kids. Like, I don't want to raise someone that I wouldn't like. So when my kids are like, Hey, can you do this for me? Even like when they're sitting at the kitchen counter and they say, can you get me some water? What I say is I will as a gift to you, not because I work for you. I will do that for you. You can, you know, I don't work for you. I'm doing this because I love you and it's easy for me to do, but I want them to be able to distinguish the difference, right? If he could hear you, because I I have my headphones in, but I say to him at least once a day, I am not your maid. I am not your waitress. Because if I was, I would have spit in your, Mm -hmm. your soda by now. Um, but also that that's because like, I want to raise helpful kids, kids who say thank you, kids who can participate, kids who can go to other people's houses, like kids who can go know. to other people's houses. Everyone talks about polite. My kid is, he's not always polite to me, but he is polite to other people. He says, yes, ma'am. And no, ma'am. He doesn't presume that he's supposed to go upstairs to people's houses or that he's supposed to go into rooms that he's not invited to. He doesn't assume that he's supposed to go into your cabinet and find a thing i mean i have i won't say but i have had friends of his who just walked to my house and started open their fridge and like and i'm like no they're like well miss so-and-so lets us i'm like i'm not her this is my house welcome to my house welcome to my house (laughs) there we go see we're gonna sing we're gonna say we'll do the bass so go back because i think we both got interrupted and tell us a about Scott and you know what the book is about just so okay so the book is about basically it sets that my dad sets sort of sets the thing like bad things will happen but so my husband died very suddenly at 44 and we had we met in high school in Baltimore and where I now live again but we re-met in Florida started dating we're married a year later because like we got through all the other stuff we're fine and then we're in process uh we had actually gone to classes to adopt an older child from foster care were had moved so we were redoing our home study and then found out that this baby was born into my my family and they were like what do you think we're like okay because we weren't thinking baby so it took us six months but we got him down from maryland to to florida and we were going through the process and then my husband died and then everything happened at once. You know, we're literally, you know, we had a, a visit with a social worker had to come and I'm like, ah, you know? And so basically the story is about the first year between the day he dies to a year later. I won't say what happened, I won't spoil it for you, but something cool happens that gives me hope that that time of July won't always suck for me every year. But um, so much happens. My mother moves down. My mother had planned to move down from Little Rock where they, they had been living for about mm-hmm. 20 years to kind of hang out and do her single person on the, on the, on the beach thing. And then she's the recent widow herself. She was a recent widow she's, herself three yeah. years. And so she comes down and literally she's like, I'm living my life. And then I go, you want to raise a toddler with me? She's like, okay. <laughs> Cause I would have been like, let me think of that as I'm moving someplace else. But yeah, she just, she canceled her apartment. She moved in with me and she's still here. So it's our third place together now. We're here back in Baltimore. But it's really a book about, it's a love story, you know, because I write about Scott really and I. And 
and how we met because I figured one of his friends who I'm still very close to said don't just write him about like he's some dude like I watch a lot of Hallmark movies because they're hilarious and oh part God, of what happened part of what happens a lot of movies about widows including The Holiday which I love I mean Jude Law as a sad widow forget about it but you Best don't he's ever looked too and Cameron that Diaz is and all that all that's all that amazing cashmere in that tiny little house. That oh. is the best everybody in that movie has ever looked. Jack Black has never looked better. It was it was like this Maybe. moment where you go, what a moment. God, everyone looks so good. But you don't know anything about his wife. You don't even know her name. You don't know yeah. he's now this sad, broken person who just happens to be beautiful and meets this beautiful woman and he has beautiful kids, Mr. Napkin Head, whatever. But my friend Jason, who is Scott's best friend, said, Don't just make him some incidental person that died tell people about Scott and I was like that became my goal my goal became to tell people what I was missing you know let people know why this was such a tragic thing I mean it's sad when anybody's husband or wife or partner dies but that this specific person was not in the world anymore and it sucked so I talk about our you know how we our first date and making on the beach and talk about days of our lives and about like going to the Mandarin Oriental and like you know first time we told each other we loved each other and I threw up because I had a massage all day long and drank and ate Love things. That. And I was I like, it was just dumb. And just stuff like that, just like goofy, goofiness, because that's all part of it too, right? Once again, to me, that was part of telling the whole story because every day of your life, even the day that we were standing there picking out grave sites, there was still something morbidly funny that happened. And I guess I've, I've always processed things funny. I'm a humor writer. I've always processed things that way. So I, you, you and I are of a generation where there were so many people who set up to go, we are going to write the book that is about real, whatever. And we're going to be consciously conscious. Irony is so boring. It's so boring because it's like, people like did you set out to write it funny it's like I just started writing and that's what came out and I went I was too tired to double check it I'm like fine whatever and I was like people some people are going to think it's weird some people will think it's inappropriate and then those people I guarantee you have never lost anybody they've never been I mean I have no oh, yeah. I've said I've said this to people I've never been to one funeral I've been going to funerals in my life I've never been to one funeral where something at least bitterly funny didn't happen like a person your grandma didn't like showed up or they got somebody got something wrong or the card was weird or the flowers were wrong or just somebody got drunk there was a fight whatever it was and I've had many of those things at many funerals I've been to but where something didn't happen that reminded you yeah that you were human yeah and I feel like as a little gift from God and the person in the universe saying it's okay to continue to have feelings it's so funny that you say this. I work as, you know, a trauma therapist who specializes in grief and loss. So I often, you, you talk about, I forget what the phrase is that you use, but I, I underlined it. Cause I was like, yes, this is something that people, t- oh, I'm fearing the moment when everyone is sick of me and I'll have spent my pity allowance. Yes. Is on page <laughs> 79. And so when people come into me, it's because they think they spent their pity allowance, right? They've already tried to be with their people. And now they're like, shit, I have to go see a therapist because people people are ready for me to be done and I'm not done. And one of the questions I ask people when I first meet them is, you know, did you have a funeral? What was that like? And I say, what was your favorite part? What was your favorite part of the funeral? 
And it people always look at me like, wait a minute, why are you asking? Like, what do you mean by favorite? That word doesn't exactly. Right? But then they go to it. They're like, actually, there was this moment. And so it's, it breaks down into two things. One is like something sincerely beautiful happened. The soprano sang their father's favorite song, something sincerely beautiful or something ridiculous. And the reason that I asked that question is that my mother's funeral, I remember all the moments of it. My father's funeral, I remember all the moments of it. The only moments that I really felt like I was present were the things that made me laugh really hard. I yes. laughed incredibly hard with my younger brother at my father's funeral over something really inappropriate that I can't say on air. And then at my mother's funeral, I sort of walked in, I was in like a total daze and I walked in and my best friend was telling the story about how my mother used to confuse the word shit-faced and bullshit. So she would be like, I was on the library board and I was so shit-faced. They wouldn't take my recommendations. I'd be like, mom, that's bullshit. That one's bullshit. Shit-faced is the drunk one. And she'd say, oh, oh, I said the drunk one, didn't I? And it just, like most people at the funeral reception didn't know that about my mom. She didn't present that way. But if yes. you knew well, you knew this about her. So it's just interesting that you talk about that because I think I think that probably is human, right? In that moment yes. when we're laughing, laughter is one of those things that you can't do later. If we find something funny right now, we laugh about it. Yeah. I can't be like, mm, it's not appropriate to laugh right now, or I'd like to do that later when I have more privacy. I can't then like garner the laughter in no, my body. No, it's there. And that, kind of, and that kind of humor, honestly, is the most sincere because it just it smacks you even in a moment where you're like, I should not be laughing at this. Yeah. You do, because it's funny. Yeah. And you, and, and what I'll say in the book for folks, I mean, absolutely go read it there. There's a lot of stuff that I would say is just true. One of the faults of memoir, one of the risks of memoir is like a better, cleaner version of yourself. And one of the things I know about grief and loss is that it is a freaking mess. I actually had a guest who we did a whole podcast episode about how, after he lost a child, he drank for 10 years. He became mm -hmm. a like absolute profound alcoholic. Come on. And that seems totally appropriate to me. It's not awesome. It's not an awesome, you know, way to go, but if you want to obliterate all of your feelings with alcohol, I understand that. So we ended up talking a lot about it and he was really open. And then he called and he pulled the episode. He was like, you know what? It was too raw. It was too real. I think it's going to hurt some people's feelings to hear all of that. I don't want it out there, which was completely fine. Mm -hmm. But to me, what was so relevant about what he was talking about was it's the truth. It's the truth. We do, we do eat pie and then go drink wine. And that's in yeah. your book. And I, I was so grateful that you talked about like weight gain as just one of the other symptoms, the same way it could be weight loss. Some people don't eat, but just one yeah. of the other symptoms of grief that then like you kind of have to deal with. You have to deal with it. But you have to I deal with it. What's one of the things, and this is one of the reasons, other, other reasons that I wrote the book was that I wanted to have these conversations. Yeah. Not just in therapeutic circles or not just in circles where people or I'm at this conference or whatever. I wanted to have this, and I was lucky to be a part of a conversation at a time when, you know, people were having these things when, when COVID started and the country was in grief, the world was in grief in a different kind of way, not just the people that we were missing that we physically lost by death to COVID, but of our autonomy and of our so money and fun. of our, whatever we thought we were about, the freedoms. Yeah. 
you know, we don't, we didn't have that. So I think that people were more ready to have these conversations because you really couldn't hide from them. And I just, I'm, I probably share too much, but whatever it is, what it is, but I've met so many other people who are, are TMI people like myself, people who were like, because we're at a part in the place in the world that's terrible in many ways. But I think one of the things that's come out of it that is a positive is that you can't really hide and you look kind of stupid. I was talking to someone earlier about a speech that I'm doing next week. And they said, what do I want to talk about? And I was just, I've been reading so much about the world of work right now and the world of the loss of control that employers have when yeah. people who have been employees decide they don't necessarily have to do that. And they don't have to be beholden to the rules. And it's not even just a, a terms of like a strict negotiation, but more of a I don't want to play this game anymore. And I think that there's so much that's happening that has made us think what makes us happy and what doesn't, because yeah. things could just be, you could just be gone. And that's- I think that those of us who have been in grief circles understand that. And those of us in the world now through COVID, because we're still not past it. It's no post yet. I'm but- just recovering still. I have, mm-hmm. we, my family had it last week. Yeah, no, it's here. We're still here. I love what you're saying also, because I think, you know, one of the experiences I had after my mom, my mom died was I sort of, you know, I I needed all of my energy for myself. I couldn't see past my own hands and I'm normally a helper and a giver, right? Like I literally, that's my job and I have kids and I have extended family and a lot of my friendships. That's how I showed up in my friendships was sort of like, let me help out. How can I, and it wasn't false. I, it was like, it's like when you have extra money, you're happy to be like, sure, I'll pay for your lunch. But if you don't have extra money, I can't pay for your lunch. And if you're expecting me to pay for your lunch, we're going to have problems because I need my own damn money. And I think what has happened in COVID, you know, I talk a lot to grievers about that, which is like, you need all of your own energy mm-hmm. and that is going to feel like a change to the people around you It's until it doesn't. And they have to understand, and I write about this in the book about how grief gave me unconsciously, but very emphatically the desire to say no to things because I didn't want to. And I wasn't, I am that person who previous to this, and it affected people when they realized I was no longer this person, they go, Hey, do you want to come down to my party? And I would go, I don't want to go. And then I'd be in my brain going, what am I doing that day? Is there something that I'm absolutely doing that if anybody asks, they'll know that I'm not making it up because I don't want to go. And now I just go, no. Nah, it's just and, and you just go, I don't want to go. And they go, they're very startled because A, I'm a person that always made. And even if I said no, ultimately a person, how dare people come into your space, demand an answer from you, and then make you do the extra work of making them feel better about you saying no. I mean, that is so stupid. And once I realized and grief did this to me, once I framed that in that term that, oh, now I got to do a song and dance about letting you down. When you knocked on my door and asked me a question that the answer had a 50-50 chance of being yes or no, and I got to worry about disappointing you. No, sorry, can't go. Well, it's interesting because you you're not saying it with anger, but I really, I mean, I there's I can't remember if this is still in the book because we're, we're we're in edits and so much has gone in and come out. But there was a moment where, you know, shortly after my mom died, somebody came to my house and asked me 
can you just watch my kids for, you know, I have three kids, her couple of her girls. Can I watch her girls for a couple of hours so she could go like get her hair cut and colored? I, I mean, I was ready to like break my own dishes. I came upstairs and was pacing in my bedroom. Like who the fuck does she think she is? Doesn't she have any idea? Like who would ask a woman who is barely like functioning to do this? And my husband, God love him, came upstairs and was like, honey, she doesn't have any idea. She doesn't have any idea. That's the problem. You can be as angry about this as you want, but you don't look like you're falling to pieces because you have clothes on and she doesn't know. She doesn't have her own experience. So just say, no, no, I can't watch your kids. And you can hear it in my tone of voice that in order to do that, I had to get some fire. I was angry yeah, a lot yeah. of the time because people expected me to be who I always was. And then I would get a little tension and anger back from people because like, yeah, they, it was inconvenient and maybe not so awesome that I couldn't be who I used to be. Now it's a little more even keeled. And I feel really grateful because I feel like my, my emotional budget is more honest because I used to do a lot of that. And when you're, when you were talking about that, it was making me think about this Wilco concert. Okay. So my husband loves Wilco and I feel meh. I like early Wilco. I'm here for the drummer. I'm not here for some of the late, like noise. Some of their albums are noise. I am with you. Noise. I the only one I really liked was Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Yeah, yeah, that's the only you know. one anyone liked. Yeah, well, I'm because sorry. I'm so sorry if Wilco's listening. It's brutal, but no, I because there was something I don't. You're I don't like. <laughs> I sound so old. Dissonance for dissonance. Yeah, no, that's, no, it's noise. It's noise. Irritating to me, it's and I noise. think there was a lot of very serious music of that time that was purposely difficult. That was purposely sonically unpleasant right, right. just and to see not, mm-hmm. if you didn't like it because if you if it was too easy I mean yeah the strokes weren't like setting the world on fire but yeah. they it was they, it was, they had melody they had melody it was, melody, it yeah. was easy it was catchy but also what Wilco did a lot of was like bait and switch. It was like, this is what our album sounds like. And this is what our concert sounds like. In our concert, we're going to do a lot of experimental songs that we just made up on the bus on the way here. So if my husband were in here, he would be very angry by this conversation. But we went to a Wilco show and I was pregnant and like somebody was smoking weed somewhere. And I was like, it's over. I didn't want to be here when I said I would come. You can do this on your own. I do not want to stand. I do not want to have to smell weed. I never did. And so I just said, honey, I'm too pregnant for this. And then later I was actually had nothing to do with pregnancy. I never want to go to another Wilco show again. I feel like the grief space was a bit like Wilco for me was like, you know what? I never wanted to drive 45 minutes to the suburbs to come to your potluck party. I'm not that person. I did it because I love you, but you know what? I've decided that's more than I have to give now. So I I am a lot of no's. I, you know, perfect example. And everyone I'm talking about will understand if they hear this, I have people that I'm going to go see the first time in almost two years when I go to Florida to do an appearance. That's it's yeah. Cause now I'm making money for things. Yeah, so it's great. It's are. paid. It's really great. So I'm really Yay. excited. About it. But one of the things people were like, well, can you come to my house? I would go, no, I'm not. Cause I'm only there for two days. We're renting yeah. a car, but we're going to be in one central space. And I'm like, come to me. me. Come to me. And and if you can't come, I will not take it personally. Yeah. It's been two years, you know, yeah. whatever. But I had no problem saying to people, even people that I really want to see, because I only talk to people I really want to see. 
or they go, Hey, I hear you're in town. You're going to have time. And I'll go, Nope, no time. And they can, they can interpret that any way that they want to. There's some people, there's a friend of mine that was like kind of poking around. I said, can't see you this trip. Going to try next year, but I haven't heard back from them. And like, that's on them because, right. you know, I have a, one of my very best friends bought a ticket, came to see us. Yeah. Great. That's and right. another it one is happen. coming up. It can happen. I often equate grieving to what it felt like to become a mom because, mm. you know, I, I wasn't a mother before my daughter was in my life. I think it's an easier way to explain to people. And you can definitely feel people who understand like the foreign country, you know, if you've lived, you've lived abroad. Like if you've lived abroad, you can describe it all you want, but until someone goes there and it's like, oh, this is what Saudi Arabia is not going to get it. No, really no. And it's not their fault. But what I say to people is it's a little bit like becoming a mom. You're never not going to be a mom again, regardless of whether you're speaking to your child or not, regardless of whether or not it is, it is an identity and who you are. And when I was a parent, there were new boundaries that I had to set. Like when people were like, oh, can you come out to dinner at eight o'clock? I'm like, actually, no. And I will never likely be able to do that Isn't again. It great to be able to use. And, you know, if you're listening, yes, we've used this as an excuse to be able to use your, the kids as an excuse yeah. to not go and go. I have friends who are still single at my age or whose kids are in college because right. they got married younger rather than when I did almost at 40 and their kids are out of the off or they uh, out of, well, now your home is your office. So it's same out thing. of the home you know, the kids are not around and they go, Hey, who wants to go see this exhibit in DC at eight o'clock on a Sunday? Mm-hmm. And I was like, and my eyes just glazes over that. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, not for me. Not for me. I go, can't, sorry. It's school night. Yeah. It's whatever. Because first of all, I'm old. I spent my career covering music. You really did. You did. You did your time out there. I did my time you out, out of the clubs. You were out at the shows. You did I was it. at the shows. I was clubbing. I was writing about stuff. I was, and I've always been, my mother will tell you, I was, she said, I was the only child she ever met who asked to go to bed. My sister would be like, I want to step and be like, yeah, I got to go. I'm sleepy. So I, need, I, I need my time. I need my time. So, and I get up really early, but like when I was, it was not the most natural fit to be up till like one o'clock in the morning. But if I had to, cause that was my job, I'd just take yeah. a nap during the middle of the day and I was gone. I have no interest when people say, hey, we're going to start at 10. I'm like, a.m.? Yeah, what are you talking about? Pete, what does that mean? I remember Scott had won this like raffle where the, and this is so dumb. We were in our mid forties. It was this hookah bar. Oh yeah. We like, we liked it because they serve Mediterranean food. We used to like to go there for dinner, mm-hmm. but they sure. were like, you won a party in the VIP section for 20 Battle service. And we're like, <laughs> what? Because this is what we used to do. We're like, mm-hmm. and he goes, he laughs. He goes, I love the fact that we're both at this age, that this is not attractive. Yeah, we need to find some young people and hand this to them. And we were like, you know what, give this to someone else, re-gift it, we're not doing it. But it was so funny to us because we were both at that stage. That wasn't the great things about marrying someone who's my contemporary because we'd both done South Beach. We'd both done that stuff. And now we're like, we were like, we wanted to be, we we used to call it leftover Saturdays where we would like 
order food or go out on Friday or get a babysitter or whatever, come home and on Saturday mornings, we sat and watched whatever we recorded the night before and eat our leftovers. And that was brilliant. That was like- You know, I think part, part of, there's so much that you write about Scott. And I have to tell you that the details that I love the most about him have to do with his overspending on sports memorabilia. I just feel like I have such a strong picture of the little boy element of him in that, yes. which is like, do you, you know, see Jersey? No, and, yeah. You all can't see, but there's the Cal Ripken painting. Why is there, why would you have that in your house? Why, why would I you have, have this in your house? Why would a grown man? And yet I have do. Ray Lewis stuff mm-hmm. in my house. Mm-hmm. I've got just why? And it just seemed like the thing to buy, I guess. It just literally, I write about a fight we had about, and I still yeah. have the shorts, so Love I it. won. The, these stupid Raven shorts, the Under Armour shorts, no Nike shorts that were too expensive. And it just like, it. he was a reasonable person for the most yeah. part. Where he would, if you had said, we could do, we could buy this meal, it's $100. If I miss meal, it's $30. He would go, well, of course the $30 meal, whatever. But for some reason, that sports memorabilia thing just but I feel like you are literally describing what it means to love and adore someone and and by adore I mean you got to love them for their foibles you got to love them for their weird quirkiness yeah and you got to write about that and celebrate that right like that's what we lose what we lose is and to me I just felt like god she's writing about a real marriage she's writing about I have I have a chapter in my book about this huge fight I get in with my husband and actually Zibby, Zibby read the early and she was like, remind me to never get you mad. And I was like, I know I seem nice, but if you're married to me, I'm a nightmare. And I think again, anytime you can tell the truth and you're right. Right. I mean, this morning, what our audio viewers don't know is that Leslie and I were were both tweeting on Glennon Doyle's uh, page because people were suggesting that Glennon should interview Leslie and I. I love her. She's amazing. But but Glennon is is someone who's sort of like, look, there are people who will be drawn towards you telling the truth and the nitty gritty and showing the insides. And there will be people who don't want to see that in Bless and Release. I I love her when she tweets about her wife and they're no. like, I didn't feel like doing this. And they're, they're hilarious. Who's, who's Abby Wambach, who is an who's actual, like, superstar to everyone to know that these women have foibles and are real and that their marriage is real. You know, that's yes. where the love is, right? That's the glue it, and the grit. I have to tell you, it took me about 30 seconds to process that they were married to each other because both of them are such rock stars. I was yeah, like, yeah. it was like when Iman... And David Bowie got married. Oh, I know. And I you know. were like goddess level, God level, whatever. And so when the Glennon Doyle and I was like, rocks are rocks. I was like, well, of course, why wouldn't they be married to each other? Yeah, exactly. Right. But I think in your book and, and particularly when you write about Scott, I mean, you write about the, the truth of him, right. Yeah. That he had some health issues that he overspent some money that yeah. you guys could argue. And that also the way in which you fall in love with each other and the kind of love that it is and the way that he felt about you. I mean, this really sincerely, that's a lot to lose. That's a it lot to lose so suddenly, right. It's, it's not average. No. And I think like I was spoiled because I have not had, I had one, I, he, he probably wouldn't tell you it was serious, semi-serious to me at least, relationships since then, and then some random dating, and then COVID happened, so, yeah. you know, it's hard to date in a pandemic, and now you're a 50-year-old woman, you know, in a pandemic with a child, you know, it's, it's silly, and I've da- had a couple dates, there's a guy 
that I met on Bumble. You can't see me rolling my eyes. She's rolling her eyes. Um, She's rolling her eyes, crew. There's there's a there's a phenomenon, and, and we're both from the same place in the similar place where many places have urban and suburban divides where That's like you don't go and I, yes and in the the dmv the dc maryland virginia thing there are people you could live in dc you could see virginia from your porch and you don't go to virginia you don't feel like it so this, this guy was from Baltimore county and this was Baltimore. like a month ago or so, the Baltimore County. And he complained the whole time about coming to coming into Fells Point, coming into where I live to to have a drink in the middle. We're right. having it's well, adorable. Drink in the middle of the yeah. And he was like, you you're, you're it's like, where's their parking? And whatever. It's like, ugh. It just it, he was work. such a stick in the mud that I was like, I am not going. There's a guy that I dated when I first moved here. And it was on, once again, it was on bubble, it was before vaccines. I, I never even hugged him, you know, it was, you right. couldn't even like be, right. so there was no physical, whatever, so I realized it wasn't a thing, but where he was visibly annoyed. I would, would go, I went to visit him in Anne Arundel County and, you know, we went to five guys, you know, into the dog park and that kind of thing. And he came and, you know, we walked around the park near me and we went, when he came to visit, when we had dinner, he was so irritated by the traffic. And I remember thinking, this is not my guy. Because I also yeah. thought, this, I had just bought my house. I had lived in that, this house maybe three months at that point, three, four months. And I thought, this guy's very happy living in Anne Arundel County with his, he always has rescue dogs, big dogs. He's always going to need a yard. <laughs> and a, he has, he says, this is a suburban guy. And I am not a suburban person. And this is never going to be a fit. And I think with grief, it goes that with relationships, you talk about the sort of relationship that we had, which we were, even we had different opinions about say sports memorabilia. We were on the same page about a lot of other things and about where to live and what to do and where to go on vacation and how to vacation, that kind of thing. And it's, yeah, it's hard to get back. And I think that if I am ever in another relationship, it's going to have to be a very specific kind of person because I'm not making changes. I'm not green acreizing my life and like moving to a farm. I don't want to. I fought very hard for this life that I had and to get back to this place. So I I don't want to ask anybody else to give up anything either. So it's just going to have to be a very specific kind of person. Is, Is it fun at all? I've interviewed and I did a podcast with another grief specialist about dating like is it exciting because life is exciting or is there always a little bit of drag? There's a drag, but the fun part of it is like we were saying before, this philosophy that you live when you have grieved where you are not pretending to be any, I'm too tired and old. Like in my thirties, I would have a date with a guy who might be like, oh, I love camping and I hate camping. I hate it. I ain't going camping. Mm -hmm. But you would at least pretend that you would be open to that because you felt like you needed to. And I talk to people and they go, if you are in a dating profile holding a fish outside or sleeping in a tent, delete. That's all done. Nope, it's done. 
I'm not doing it, not doing it. And, and you feel a lot now that I have loved and I know that I am lovable and I know that I am worthy to be loved and a person that can be loved. I'm not going camping. I mean, even pre COVID, I wasn't, I'm not, God forbid, I'm not going to drive around the country, go to a fish concert with you. Oh, I'm please, not, Jesus. No, <laughs> we're too I old just, for fish. I, I wrote a column once that I said I was stridently anti noodle. Mm-hmm. Noodling man, I can't mm-hmm. do it. Nothing. And people were like, no, whatever. And like pretend that I wanted to be at a Dave Matthews band show. And Dave no. Matthews gives really great shows, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want to be in and out. I'm not going, and I have been to some Jimmy Buffett shows that were pretty good, but I went on the party bus once. I want to be trapped with a bunch of drunk parrot heads, and I, think, I don't want to do it. And like I said, I've met him, lovely man, just lovely. I don't like being at festivals. I don't like being trapped at places no. where I feel like I can't get out. Everybody's drunk or high because I'm not going to be. I'm going to be going. But I like a drink, but not to the point where I can't like get out. You know, I, once again, I'm it's an urban person. The, it's the truth of who you are. And again, I think there is something, maybe it's about grief. Maybe it's about not being 30 anymore. I mean, I think about this a lot in therapy. I feel like when I first went into therapy, my therapist was just, every time I went in was like stripping away, like, oh, you're using humor as a defense. And I'm like, oh, I'm not gonna be able to do that anymore, am I? Or like, oh, well, you know, you're avoiding. And I'm like, oh, now that you pointed it out, I'm not gonna be able to avoid it. Mm. But I feel like there's something about being integrated in the truth of my experience, which is like, I don't want to do it. And if I don't want to do it, I don't think I can make myself do it. Like I don't have the kind of wherewithal to bully myself that I did when I was 30. Thank God. But it means I make different decisions now. It means that that I'm happy. You make decisions when you're in that first desperate moment of grief, you, you are batting away anything that's threatening you and you're protecting yourself and so once you I love the word the integration part of it that you integrate back into society in some way little pieces of who you are little pieces of who you're going to be little pieces of who you have to be right now and you'll figure out if that's just a defense thing or if that's something that you're gonna be but this glorious thing where you go like I was talking to a friend of mine years ago when Brooks was younger and we had a birthday party for him the power went out it was right after a hurricane in Florida it's a whole thing so we're sitting outside and we're like, we, we thought people were going to leave, but they didn't because everyone lived near me. They're like, but you've got pizza and booze at your house and kids playing in your yard. Why would we go home? There's no pizza or booze. There's no light anywhere. So we put up some torches, whatever was fine. So I was talking to a friend of mine on the couch, I mean, on the porch. And she said, Leslie, we got to get you and Brooks out to go glamping with us. And I was like, nope. No, that's and a negative goes, over. And she goes, there's something about camping people where they feel like if you just went camping with them, no. I've been camping. I don't want to do it anymore. And it's like this, it's this weird like place that they're in where they go, no, no, you don't understand. And she's like, oh no, we have, it's really great. It's like a hotel. I said, then I'll just go to the hotel. I said, yeah. if we go someplace, I'll meet you. Literally, I'll meet you guys there and we'll hang out and we'll do the campfire. We'll do the thing. And then I'm going back to the Four Seasons or the, what the, I'm just not going to do it. And so she's trying to convince him. A friend of mine walks out of the door. She's with her beer. She goes, she ain't going camping. And she goes, <laughs> so it's like done. Um, and it's not about you. That's the thing I think. And I think you, I hope, I think you agree with me is that a lot of the times when people are trying to figure out who you're going to be after this grieving thing, uh, they have to get over the fact that it's about them. That's right. They have to get over the fact that when you say no, I don't want to drive to your potluck party. 
It's That's not right. to hurt you. It's not a judgment on your potluck party. Even if I never wanted to go, it's that now I can't ever see myself putting myself in a position to get in a car, to put on makeup, to get someone to watch my kid, to drive 45 minutes, to be at a place where you're trying to sell me something maybe, or your, your friend's there and she's got pampered chef or whatever the hell it is. And then to get in the car and drive home, I would do that. Yeah. There's so much grace required when someone you love is grieving. And I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have a whole soapbox about a lot of this stuff. Like I, I really feel like we don't do any grief education and there's no reason why we couldn't have a class in college Mm -hmm. that talks about what happens to someone's body when it is traumatized so that people understand that like when you're looking at someone and essentially passing judgment, because you, it's been three months and you think they should be better. You're the one that's wrong, not them. They're doing their thing it takes as long as it takes, but there is, you know, I know, and, and and I had to have a really hard conversation with a dear friend who we, we have dust-ups every once in a while. We've known each other a long time and the dust-ups are, Hey, I need to let you know that this hurt me, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, Oh, well, thank you for telling me I didn't do that intentionally. I wouldn't know if you didn't tell me that's, that's the nugget of our friendship for a very long time. And she came good deal after my mom died to say, like, I need you to know that when your mom died, these are the things that you did that hurt me. And I was like, there is never going to be a time that this conversation is okay. And I'm so (laughs) sorry about that because I understand that you, that is how our friendship normally works. And I love and really honor our friendship, but you are going to need to give me this grace until I die. I cannot be held accountable for your feelings about how I did grief because I mean, literally I had to check myself into a hospital. I was sick with grief and I need you to take that with love. And she was able to say like, okay, I didn't know. I wasn't sure. I got it. I won't mention it again. Now I said that to her. And since then I actually have been able to hear a little bit of, of how it wasn't so much that she was hurt. She was a little afraid. Like I I was not doing well and she was scared and didn't know how to be involved in it. So it's all cushioned with love. But one of the things that I, it's all because you got to listen for that love. It's in there, even when people are banging around. Mm. But, you know, when you're really vulnerable and you are really destroyed, at least for me, what I said a lot was like, I don't have my M&M hard candy coating. Like mm. I can't, it doesn't slip off me. I am going to melt in your hand. I can't oh, wow. show up for what you are bringing right now. No. I need you to be the coating. I need you to coat me because, because I, I, I just don't have it. I don't have it. And and that's absolutely true. Cause I know that there were things that like in telling people about Scott dying, even that there were people that were traumatized by having to hear it, whatever, but I couldn't worry about it. And I said, I said to my sister, it's in the book. She goes, do you want to know what what you said to me? I said, no, I don't. And she goes, okay. And she's never told me. I'm a trauma therapist and I call, I knew my mother died. And I called every one of my siblings. I even said to myself, like, they're going to remember this moment for the rest of their lives. It was a year later, Leslie, a year later that I was like, I have each one of their wives and husbands in my fucking phone. I could have called their partners and they could have heard this in a gentle and loving way. I mean, I get chills when I think about it now. It's hard not to hold myself accountable because- I have all the degrees after my name. Like if somebody should have done it better, it was definitely me. And I did not do it better. I, but you I did know it what? Like But once again, but you weren't thinking as a therapist, you were thinking I as wasn't. a daughter. 
and a sibling and a human. So but that's I, why there's so much grace that needs I was to just say, the to grace it. that needs to happen when you go, that person was crazy that day. And I, I couldn't, you can't, people would say, I, there was a, a friend of mine, I haven't talked to her in a long time, but she was also a PR person. And I was supposed to have written the story about one of the places that she represented. It was like a cocktail store and she didn't know. So she calls me annoyed that it wasn't in the paper. And I go, well, my husband just died. So didn't have time for your cocktail story. And I felt terrible the minute I said it because yeah, I wanted to cut her the off. So she yeah, didn't leave did. me alone, but she also really liked Scott. I apologize profusely. And she said, Leslie, nobody cares. It's fine. It's fine. But in that moment, and I think I did kind of want to hurt her a little bit, not to hurt her, to hurt her, but I needed to back her off. I needed to get her off the phone. And it just came from this place of desperation. It's like, I can't. Yeah. I, and I said to her later, I said, normally I would have called you to tell you it wasn't running, but that was not important. It's no normal. There's, there's no, no normal. There's no normal in it. And I think once again, it's one of the reasons that I wrote my book the way I wrote a book, other than that's just the way that it flowed for me, is that I was on, a, on the Today Show after the book came out and I was in an interview with David Kessler, who oh, man. wrote, among other things, one of the books with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And it's funny because he said to me, he laughs, he goes, you don't like the steps, do you? I go, I don't believe. I said, it's not it's your true. fault. It's not, not real. They're not real. It's a little said, bit his fault. It's a little bit his fault because he keeps talking about them and then he, he added talking his own. about them. But yeah, I, and I, added I, his own. It's, it's terrible. But I will say that fault. it is not his fault, at least at first, particularly with Elizabeth Kula Ross, that people didn't understand yeah. two important things. They didn't understand they were never meant to be linear, they never meant to be step one, step yeah. two, step three, like in like a, a new kids on the block. I'm step one. No, it wasn't <laughs> like that. It wasn't step by step. That's okay. right. That's right. It wasn't like that. It was that they were meant to be that you might not ever get to step six or whatever. You go, it goes around and around. You might go back to step three. But also that it was meant to never be specifically about death. It was meant to be about accepting that you had a terminal illness, which is why some of the steps in the way that we think of them as accepting someone's death don't really make a lot of sense You're on their surface. So when I talked to him and he was lovely to me, I, I think we were not, I think I'm a little chaotic for, for him. Cause I'm like, woo. Also, I was like, you're like, he's work. got a natural partnership that I would have put together for you. Let me just say no. that. Is it just a lovely person? Nora but makes again, sense. Yeah. David Nora, makes- Nora's my girl. Yeah. But I think that because that is incredibly enlightening and resonant, sure. obviously for so many grieving people, of course. I just the meet someone is like important. You or Nora or my friend Lisa Kefauver, do you know her? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who's a good friend of mine. That is a, uh, a sneak bitch. I mean, I love her. That she's people hysterical. like us who are, and you guys are from therapeutic backgrounds or social work backgrounds. I'm just like a lady who like used to write about, you know, booze and, and Jimmy Buffett concerts. And then this thing happened and I just kept writing about it. Yeah. Um, well, you're an expert in your own way. You know, and I have now been, not only have I been in therapy and still am because therapy is great, but I've also been on like panels of like at places like Soaring Spirits, like Camp Widow. And yeah. I've done a lot of listening and there and a lot of grief groups and I've done a lot of training and that kind of thing. So it's really great, but it also comes from the, that this thing happened to me. Yeah. So like I said, I would never discount what David Kessler does or what 
no, you know, me neither. Those, those, those groups that are very much about, you know, the handbook that's pink yeah. or pastel and has a butterfly <laughs> and a coffee cup for that stuff. I know that a lot of people, when I pitched the book, didn't quite get what it was. They're like, ah, grief, pass, you know, no. Yeah. And they, or they thought it was going to be treacly or they thought it was going to be, and that's, that's a value judgment. They thought it was going to be a specific sort of sincere, a specific sort yeah. of no fun, or as you said, just not accepting or presenting the truth of the way that grief just punches you in the face. I mean, again, like I just, there won't be other people who are able to write your story. And one of the things about memoir and grief memoir specifically is like, even if it doesn't resonate with you or me, I want that person to write the book because yes. there's all different people out there. But I do really think, because I've read a lot of these books, that yours is distinct. I mean, partly in your voice, in the way that you're interweaving all of the things that are just true and individual to your experience, but also the fact that some of the stuff that you're talking about is like, it doesn't feel prettified at all. It just feels like the truth. It just feels like the thing that you need us to know because we're validating your story by reading it, right? And so there's an element in there that feels like, God, thank God, you know, when you write about the woman who writes to you in the, emo yes. you know, the emotional competitive Olymp Olympics and, and then you call her, I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is my woman. And, yeah. Like, no, would I do that now? Probably not. No, I, I know. I would have understood that she was in a specific place, but don't give me your number if you don't want me to call you. You know, I the was pain like. pain begets pain, you know? And so I, I also like, I am, I do a lot more meditation now. I've started some yoga my feet are on the ground more and I am in less pain because of all the work that it takes, the writing and the, you know, that it takes to, to actually grieve. But in the early days, I bit some people in my pain. And yeah. even when I knew better, sometimes it felt better. So I, there are things I wouldn't do either. I want to ask you about music real quick. What yes. you, there's music in the book. And I just want to know, like, when you associate songs with grief or the ones that help lift you out of your grief, yes. like tell me about music for a couple of minutes. When my dad died, I was obsessed with the Dear Evan Hansen soundtrack. I can't oh. even tell you why. When my mom died, like the song 10 Feet Tall by Afrojack, I don't know what that song is, but it is in my soul. It is a healing song that allows me to lose my shit in the right way. So tell me about music. Well, so that I don't I know if you can see I that sure way, can. the words sure that are, okay. Yeah. So this was my wedding song and yeah. it's Stephen, and it's in my book, Stephen mm -hmm. Mitchell's It Might Be You. And from Tootsie Somethings, from Tootsie, it yes. might be you. Oh, so great. Oh, that's the first time I sang on my podcast. Woohoo, you did so great. And yeah. it sounds great. And I have this, it was very hard for me because I associated, also because it just seemed like I was being punked. It's like, I waited all my life for this and then it got taken from me and screw you universe, I hate you. But this was a wedding gift from my sister. And so rehanging it was, I didn't realize when we moved, the moment I moved the first time from the house that Scott and I lived in to our house together, that it was, I had no idea what happened to it. I mean, I was, as I was moving, I realized it had been in a closet. And I just cried. I was so happy that I had it. Mm -hmm. So I knew it was going to take a place of honor because now, first of all, I love that song and I can look back at it because it wasn't, it was the ending that sucked. The story itself, our story was really yeah. great. The That's thing we had together was really good. It's just the ending sucks. So I'm not going to throw away the, the great part for that ending that was so bad, 
And so now there's a coda to it, which is yeah. our stuff. The first time I heard Whitney Houston's It May Almost Have It All, once again, another bittersweet song, oh. after Scott died, I remember driving to, okay, <laughs> and I person. felt so great about this. I drove, we're driving to work and it came on and I, on this, like either the radio or Spotify or whatever. And I just sat in the car and sobbed because I had to, and yeah. I had to confront all of that. That didn't we almost, and that, and, and, her live version of that from 1987 sent it to me uh, it MTV awards it just I'll, I'll attach it to the show notes yeah it's just it. so amazing and it was so cathartic and i just dried my face and went in the office and i was fine yeah. i think we could play your wedding song to teenagers now and they could be like i understand what this man is talking about it, yes. it, 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 i'm gonna, I'm gonna would, play this over and over would be like this sounds weird and old and i don't like yeah. it and they there is some there is. And that'd be sure. fine. Yeah. It's very light rock, my Stephen Bishop song, and I'm very fine with it. But it also is a song that it's about hope. And also I fell in love with the song when I was 11. I didn't understand really what that was about. I didn't understand being in your thirties and looking for someone and having yes. lived yes. your life in this place where you're trying to, you're seeing people that are happy or trying to figure out why, how they got, I wonder how they met and what makes it last. If I found, that was my favorite part. If I found the place, but I recognize the face, it's like, you get to the right place, but I even recognize it. Am I so attuned? Am I tuned enough to what I need to even figure it out? Anyway, I'm going to say probably 98 or so. When did Try Whistling This come out? The Neil mm. Finn album. Okay, so we're uh, at the nine- nine- yeah, go ahead. Is that right? At the 930 Club. Yeah. And he ha- invites a woman up on stage to sing. Oh, I was there. Feet. Oh, I was there. And the long woman. hair. Yes! Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We were and there at the same show, Leslie. Oh, oh, yeah. And when she gets to the finger of flame, that flame has turned upon itself. And he was clearly shocked at what a beautiful voice she had. Yeah. Do you want my presence on yeah. you? Yeah. Who knows yeah. where that might lead? And the name of my podcast is Who Knows Where That Might Lead. My, 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 my substack, my substack oh. is who knows where that might lead. Because to me, that's about, I start weird noodly things and go, we're going to get to a conversation. And that, that song, it's my favorite credit. That song. woman, not, I mean, it, we were breathless. She was unbelievable. And he was not expecting that. He was he, not expecting it. And the show did all these, oh, we're, we're going to off mic. We're going to have to talk about that show because I actually sent up a a paper airplane at that show that stuck into the mic stand. It hit I, the mic. I remember stand. you. I See? remember that paper That's airplane. Me. I was wearing the pink and green dress. Uh, anyway, this is too much for me. It's what I want to say to people yeah. who are listening right now, Leslie and I are going to come back together because we're going to become best friends after this. Yes, there you go. I, what I really want to say to you is that the last 25 pages of your book made me sob like I could cry right now me too I just think and I just want funny. people to know that that's a thing that's gonna happen she sneaks up on you it's like funny and it's a little bit lighthearted, and it's a little you get a little bit of tears and then you are undone by the last 25 <laughs> pages so I just want to say the glory of that story and that writing what it, it just oh, totally thank my you breath I remember had, so when I had to read it to do the audiobook oh. and I had not cried I mean, I was in my then. chair and my husband's like, what is going on? And I'm like, I, don't I had not cried. I cried a little with the ER mm-hmm. scene, but not a lot. Cause it's, it's kind of bitterly funny that scene at least, but that, that part of it, I yeah. sobbed it and I, I had to start over. It was really hard 
to do it. And I think the engineers are like, is she about crying at all? <laughs> it's, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Thank you for agreeing to give me more time because I'm not done. Thank you, Leslie. Okay. Bye, Megan. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for being here. Look out on my Instagram for my Instagram live with Leslie Gray Streeter that's coming up next week. And uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please come over to Apple Podcasts, go down to the middle page where they have the ratings and give us a five-star rating and leave a comment. It helps other people find the show. Thanks so much. And we'll meet you back here next week.